turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. Hour number two. Tonight, no less than five states in the news in relationship to the pro-life front, including Louisiana, Georgia, Virginia, Texas, and in Alabama, a delay in the vote on a bill to ban abortions following uproar over exceptions for rape and incest. Tom Roberts, no relation, has the story. The bill passed the House last week, but the Republican-controlled Senate abruptly removed a rape and incest exception from the bill without allowing a roll call vote. After some heated debate between minority Democrats and Republicans, the Senate President Pro Tem moved to delay a vote on the abortion bill until next week. The bill's sponsors said she wanted the bill to be challenged and forced up the court system until the Supreme Court had to revisit Roe v. Wade. Tom Roberts, NBC News Radio. All right, let's talk a bit about what's going on on the national level. Joining me is the Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, Brian Johnston. Brian, great to have you with us tonight. And uh, we are thankful for this president who's willing to examine what's really going on now with the abortion industry. Those who have been following the pro-life line and the pro-life message over the years, you understand that the pop media does not represent what Roe v. Wade really does. Even people in your church may think, oh, it, it just is for the first three months, or it's just for cases of rape and incest, or the mother's life is in danger. That's not the case at all. And we're seeing this now. The, the real advantage to the boldness in the abortion industry is they're no longer hiding what they're doing and what their goals are. So we saw in New York State on January 22nd of this year, the governor, after the legislature had passed, no restrictions on late-term abortions whatsoever. Plus, they had on the books a measure that said if a child's born alive, you must treat that child as a living child, because it is. You must care for that child. They struck even that. So if a child is born in the course of an abortion, then you just finish the job and you kill the kid, squirming on the table. And this is deeply alarming to some because they haven't recognized what the goal of the abortion industry is and the abortion mentality. It is not merely to terminate a pregnancy. I want to say that again. Those, that's the words that are used. But you and I are the product of a terminated pregnancy. When you were born, your mother was no longer pregnant. The goal of the abortion industry is not that. It is to ensure that the child is dead. And it has been common sense that's been restricting that, but they're feeling very bold now. And we also saw in the state of Virginia, the state of Vermont, and New Mexico, the same type of measures introduced. So we recognize this is a very real battle. And if you've been around this battle for a long time, 
and you thought we were joking about the nature of Roe, uh, we weren't. Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, it doesn't get enough attention. There are companion decisions that came down in 1973. Roe created the artifice of the trimester system. But it was Doe v. Bolton, signed by the same man, Justice Blankman, and with the same judges affirming it, and only two dissenting, said that abortion really is a matter of choice. So abortions can be done, and they are bold enough to define it for any reason that the doctor, I've been on before, I've explained to you, it's the abortionists that make the decision. And the abortionist will invoke the woman's, quote, health and well-being, and that can be drawn from any factor, her age, her physical uh, living conditions at the time. Any sociological factor can be projected by the abortionist, and that's all the way through pregnancy. And that's why there were people like Gosnell. Remember Dr. Gosnell in Philadelphia? He was doing it under Roe v. Wade. The reason we're seeing now these late-term abortion bills coming up and even post-abortion is because they know Roe will be overturned soon. And they want to cement their practice as firmly as possible. And you have to recognize that the abortion mentality, the abortion laws that are being celebrated by our culture are there for one reason. It's to kill human children. That's why they're there. And if these were if these were canine abortions, then puppies must die. If they're equine abortions, then ponies must die. It's very important to recognize we're talking about killing human beings. So it's it's harsh to put it that way, but you have to recognize this. You have to recognize the severity of this battle. And it's got nothing to do, really. My theology is that God made each of us. But this isn't about my theology. This isn't a theological debate. This is either killing human beings or it's not. And they know that it is. The abortion lobby knows that they're killing human beings. And now they're being bold enough to make that known. So we have to let people know that that's what this is about, and you have to be willing to stand up and say something about it. What is your sense in terms of what appears to be sort of a growing patchwork quilt of a variety of laws that that are are, are fairly broad in terms of of restrictiveness. We're watching, for example, out of Alabama, uh, their delay in a vote to ban abortions uh, related to rape and incest. Um, we have out of Texas a bill to ban late-term abortions for terminally disabled fetuses. Is some of this strategic in the sense that at some point? Uh, it it makes its way up to the United States Supreme Court to answer the broader question of the legality of all of this? Yes, and Craig, I think it's very important to recognize what we're dealing with culturally. Um, we have to help people see this. And so I am of the persuasion, as Lincoln was, that we have to help our fellow citizens understand what's at stake. And I personally believe that it is these later-term measures 
that are going to overturn Roe. We heard a report on the heartbeat bill and some of these other bills. The problem with that, not that I don't agree with their intention, but the efficacy of of an argument is when it's self-evident. The right to life is a self-evident truth. That's what our founder said, that human beings are not made by the government, you're made by their creator, and that the government has a duty to protect human life. So if we want to get our friends and neighbors, Joe Sixpack, Sally Soap Opera, somebody who never goes to church, if we want to help them understand what's going on, they can clearly see that when a child is, is eight months along, this child is born in the course of a late-term abortion, you can hold the baby in their arms. The babies are squirming on the table. Well, this is no longer theological. This is no longer a question of protecting zygotes or protecting my concept of when life begins. This is clearly protecting what is obviously a human life. That's the kind of law that the court, I believe, will use to remove Roe entirely. And then we can get back to those other issues. But until Roe is removed, we can't protect babies. And that's why we have to take it down in a way that people can understand, that normal people can understand. It's a self-evident fact. That's a baby. Can we please protect that baby at least? And this is very important in the, in the larger strategy. Now, one thing in California, uh, folks may not realize, because the pop media, the L.A. Times, Sacramento Bee, these are the same people who, who redefine and misrepresent Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, what the laws really are. They don't tell you that abortion has no restrictions in California. There's no restrictions on abortion in California. And they don't tell you that you're paying for them. Medi-Cal, in its abortion statements, literally says, we will cover all abortions in California. They make that known. And Planned Parenthood says, hey, we'll make sure you apply anyway, because they know how to get through the regulations so they can get government funding for their abortion services. It's a government-sponsored industry. Under the Jerry Brown administration, all regulations were removed. That was, that was uh, called SB 980 in 2013. So now in California, there are more regulations on an animal clinic, on an animal vet hospital, than there are on abortion centers. It's unregulated, and you're paying for it. And even late term, even late term. Now, something we've talked about since we're dealing with, with these late abortions. Amazingly, in California, it's still on the books. In 1995, a law was passed that said if a child is born in the course of an abortion, you have to protect that child's life. That is still on the books. The problem is this. There's no way to enforce that. Right now, there's no regulators. There's no accountability in the abortion industry. And so there's no way to enforce that. We don't know how many Gosnells there are in California. We don't know how many late-term abortions. So we have to let people know these facts. And we now are working. We have a, a team of lawyers. We're filing Freedom of Information Act requests to make sure that these facts are made known. As I said, 
Uh, right now, the state of California is run by the most radical Democrat pro-abortion party we've ever seen. They believe in unlimited abortion. And yet, on our books, it says, well, if that child happens to survive, well, it should be protected. That's, a, that's the law of California. So the laws are there to protect children, but, but it's not enforced. So we're looking at an incredible dichotomy that, that again, the average person, you don't need to go to church, you don't need to, you just need a, a, a scintilla of recognition to realize these are human babies. Please wake up. So this is an opportunity for us to point that out, and I believe it is those types of laws in other states that are going to help people understand, and then will help the court to overturn Roe. And no doubt, many of these cases, as we see, as <coughs> for me, I suggested, sort of this patchwork quilt, uh, will no doubt begin to sort of force all of this up to the top, and hopefully with ongoing changes at the U.S. Supreme Court in a positive, more constitutional fashion, we will finally get some definitive answers. Brian Johnson, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. More information available on the web at nrlc.org. All right, 517, I'm sorry, 617. Let's get caught up in some traffic here. We do so with our good buddies in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael Bennett. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a lot of phraseology that is bantied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, added to this list, one that's not, um, not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more especially in countries that uh, heretofore have been locations where um, faith, particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, there are anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are uh, persistent fear, disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions. Yeah, and, and I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. That's Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And what we've documented fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we, uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire 
talked about Christians taking over instead of a theocracy and, and, and forcing everyone to become Christians, which we saw as nonsense, but these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, an unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger. And so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it, is it perfect? No. But until I can find a better term, that's one I'll use. Okay. With that said, um, why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia? I, I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as, a, as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't agree with Christians, I'm, I'm anti-Christian philosophy, or, or, or theocracy, or, or, or theology, or things of that nature. And so, it probably was my second choice, but I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia. As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is um, an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by governments, it's endorsed by the state church, in this case Islam. But what about here in America? Um, We're beginning to see incidents of this, and while perhaps not reported on with any frequency on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and, and uh, covert, others more overt and, and even systematic. Why, why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, who, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrarian to this notion of, of again, the anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia? Well, you know, at one point the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control of society, for good and for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians just used it, but they still had this control. What, what's happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society, where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion, and where other groups now have gained a lot of power. And so uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power who never had power before, and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously this is not the same thing as the Middle East. Uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia, like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being big as themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue where they can justify it on non-bigoted grounds, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians. So this notion, Doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but there are certain cases where um, the, the, the so-called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided that it's only directed toward certain groups. Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which, you know, doesn't make sense if you really think it through. But yeah, they, 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 there clearly is an intolerance. And in their, in their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well-educated, as tolerant. So it's 
it's very hard for for to point out how intolerant they are because in their mind they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever adjective you want to use. Uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia. Are there those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia uh, because it is different than many of the other types of phobias that are out there? And by that, I mean this doctor. Racism, I mean, clearly an individual, they're, they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia, based on behavior. But, but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual a sense of uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it? Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now is becoming a minority group, and uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had. We're going to take a time out on that point and come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. A brief time out back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, doctor? Seemingly... um, uh, what's the best way to phrase this? Uh, inconsistently applied. And, and by that, I mean, uh, for example, if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a, a clear uh, Christianophobia, they may not necessarily take objection to, I don't know, say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen, and yet uh, they will rear their 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office, for example. Why does it seem to be inappropriately or, or, or in, in, not, not consistently applied? Well, I think that those with Christianophobia, they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable and those that they deem unacceptable. And as long as Christians do that which is acceptable, then they don't face any of these pressures. That's when Christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable. Uh, and, of course, some of the, some of the values uh, I think most Christians would be comfortable with, but others... Uh, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values. And that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like, like anything else. I mean, if you, if you do what I agree, you know, should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I disagree with, and then, then we talk about tolerance. 
There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or, or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, uh, create this, uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which in this so-called melting pot experiment of America, that there's been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface um, is is probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see, is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia? You know, I would just say it's just a matter of, you know, that the sentiment has been there, but people didn't have the power to do anything about it. And now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past, people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can pass those sort of rules. Uh, and so the way I would see it is it's a matter of power, that certain groups now have power to harm Christians, and they don't like Christians for for a variety of different reasons, and now so they are going to use that power. What about those that would argue that for there to be any demonstration of, of a true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias? Okay, you know, that's a very interesting question. And having been someone studying race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today, so where, where's, where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you, we aren't going to see overt, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do, do this, this, and what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics, and I asked them, if you knew that this person was belonged to this group, would you more or less likely to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out the person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Evangelicals a little bit less, about 40 to 35%. I don't have precise numbers in my head. So, there, now you have a situation where, while that, that, that evangelical feminist may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that Christian, anti-Christian bias can mean in our society. All right, toward that end... 
it begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia towards uh, conservatives or evangelicals. Is there a degree to which we have contributed uh, to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question, uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with, Westboro Baptist Church, and I, and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional conservative evangelical Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. And yet they pull on the moniker of we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God, they claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore there, there is this label now that's associated. And I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christianophobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders? Well, you know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist. Even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin, and we sin against other people. Uh, you know, having say race, uh, there are sins Christians have done historically concerning racism, uh, and we can look at other problems. So, so Christians are not are not innocent in that they've been perfect, and, and now people are coming and attacking them. However, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive, and so. While, yes, Christians are not perfect, Christians have done some things, we've victimized some people, uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the, the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems, but that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented, I told you about, when it comes to academia. So it's sort of a it's sort of a both and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians, but we also deserve not to shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people with Christianophobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course, but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the public square. We understand that you know part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous. I mean, on and on the list of adjectives uh, goes uh, goes. And yet, I have to wonder, um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there? That, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist Church is on the extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, there there is a sense, I think, perhaps, that uh, to a degree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this. And we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for his namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia? Well, in my book, I go into more detail on this, but in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point. In time, for, for who knows how long. But we still have a right to have a voice in the public square. So I believe we have to fight for that voice in the public square. On the other hand, we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite, to, sort, to, uh, to work together uh, so that we can protect each other. We're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas, uh, art, uh, entertainment, academia, where we've not been in order to influence in that way. 
I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice, and we can grow as a group if we are careful. Uh, you know, if we, if we can uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values. It's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable. And as you mentioned, uh, we've just kind of... Um skim the surface of this very deep topic. You can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through uh, many of the uh, usual suspects and Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, GeorgeYancey.com. And Professor Yancey, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Christian buyers. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.